Okay. Um, for those watching online, uh, I just mentioned that last week Joseph was preaching from 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, and he made the point that we are instructed, encouraged to pray with such confidence that we can know that whatever we've asked for, God will give it to us. And Joseph was a little bit uncertain about all the situations that we can have that confidence, but that's clearly what the verses are telling us. We can have confidence in prayer. Now, that obviously leads to the question of, well, what things can we be confident of? And how, how do I pray knowing that God even has given me this thing even before it's arrived? Well, this week we're going to look at verse 16 and 17 of 1 John chapter 5. And I think what's going on in these verses is John is giving us a very practical example of these types of confident prayer. So what we're going to do this evening, my aim is that we will think about what that prayer is. And why is it that we can be so confident in praying this particular prayer that John gives us the example of, before then encouraging us to pray exactly in that way that John teaches. So let's have a look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. I'll just have to find the text again. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is a sin that does not lead to death. My point this evening is that verse 16 is an example of the confident prayer described in verse 14. Why do I think that verse 16 is an example? Well, two reasons. One is the content of the verses. So uh, there's a particular verb that is used in verse 14 and 15, the verb to ask. And this verb to ask doesn't come up anywhere else in 1 John, apart from 1 John chapter 3, verse uh, 22, where also it's talking about asking with confidence from God. And then it comes up three times in verse 14, and then it comes up again in verse 16. It seems clear that having uh, sort of sprinkled the idea of asking with confidence back in chapter 3, John now picks up the theme in chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, and then goes on talking about this asking in verse 16. So don't treat verse 14 and 15 and 16 and 17 as two separate chunks, as though one is about prayer and then one is about sin. Actually, they're both part of the same argument. There's a flow from one to the other. They're all about praying And verse 16 and 17 is about praying in regard to sin. But then also, there's a reason I would link them, which is due to the emphasis of the verses. So if 14 and 15 are about asking, they're specifically about asking with confidence. Uh, This is the confidence we have in making these prayers. And that confidence is also seen in verse 16. Where it says, if you've got a modern English translation, probably it says in your version, he should pray and God will give him life. Now, it's understandable why the translators have have written it in that way. Because who is the one that gives life? It's God, isn't it? Actually, John says that. Chapter 5, verse 11. uh, This is his testimony. God has given us eternal life. God gives life. 
But actually what John has written is he will ask and he will give life. It's as though there's a bit of ambiguity. Is the person giving life the same as the person doing the asking? I think John has left that ambiguity in there on purpose. I think what he's inviting us to understand is that if you ask, your asking is so certainly going to be given that you can also be considered the one to give the life. Even though the life doesn't actually come from you, the life comes from God. It's a bit like, for example, if you went to Morrison's asking for a refund. You'd speak to the girl behind the counter, the cashier, and she'd say, yeah, no problem, I'll give you a refund. But she's not going to give you a refund. She's not going to touch her bank account. The transaction is not really between you and her, and yet she can say, I will give you a refund. Because she is acting on behalf of the company for which she works. And she knows that this refund is in line with their policy, that they'd be more than happy to grant it if you've got the receipt and so on. And so she can say, I will give you the refund. And I think John's saying, such is the confidence that we can have in these prayers, that when we ask, we are giving our brother and sister life. The life that comes from God. So what John's doing in verse 16 is he's telling us that we can pray with confidence, knowing that we've received what we ask for, when we pray for our brothers and sisters in the fight against sin. Have you seen your brother or sister fall into a particular sin? Pray for them. Pray for their restoration. And be confident that God will answer. Are you watching your brother or sister face a regular point of temptation? Pray for them that they would not yield to that temptation, but that God would keep them through it. And know that God will grant what you ask. Have you been wronged by a brother or sister? Have they sinned against you? Pray for them. And you can be confident that God will grant that person repentance and lead them to life again. That's a powerful encouragement that we get in in these verses. Now, why is it that we can be so confident? Why is John so confident that these sorts of prayers will be answered? Well, that's the reason that I read, in order to explain this, uh, that's why we read so many different sections of 1 John. Um, This conclusion, this confidence, is not a new idea that I don't think that John is bringing up right at the end of his letter. I think this really is a natural conclusion of all that he said beforehand. Let's go back over some of the things that he said beforehand and see why this confidence is a natural conclusion of what we've heard already. In chapter 1, John starts off by telling us that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Ordinarily, our sin, our darkness, ought to cut us off from God. It breaks that fellowship. Because light and darkness cannot, they can't be in the same place together. The light wipes it out. So our darkness cannot allow us to remain in fellowship with God. And John warns that if you claim to have fellowship with God, but go on walking in darkness, then you lie. You deceive yourself. Perhaps you deceive those around you. So what hope is there then for the sinner? What hope is there then for the Christian 
of remaining in his light. How can we totally avoid sin for the rest of our days? It seems so unachievable. But John, in the same passage, says you need not despair. Because when we do sin, we have someone who speaks in our defense. This is chapter 2, verse 1. I write this so that you will not sin. Because, of course, if you are going on sinning, you cannot have fellowship with the Father. But if you do sin, if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus protects our access to God, the light. He maintains our fellowship with the light. In fact... In chapter 5, God says the only way you can have his light and his life is through Jesus the Son. Because if you're trying to meet it on your own terms, you're never going to achieve it because of the darkness that you have and that you continually fall into. There is no other route to light because without Jesus as our advocate, there is no way we can deal with the guilt of our sin. Now perhaps... You're sitting here thinking that you've heard it all before. You know that Jesus defends us. He speaks to the Father on our behalf. But you wonder, even me? Because you know the depth of your own sin. You know how frequently you fall. You know how sometimes you're even willfully disobedient. And you wonder, would Jesus speak in my defense? Certainly, uh, you imagine there'd be no Christian who would speak in my defense if they really knew what I was like. Does Jesus speak in my defense? Can he pay the price of my sin? How great it is? How persistent it is? How willfully disobedient it is? Isn't Jesus also the righteous one? Wouldn't he therefore be offended by my secret lusts? My repeated disobedience? What are the limits of this defense that Christ makes? Chapter 2 verse 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. What limit is there on the atoning sacrifice of Christ? If it's great enough to cover the sins of the whole world, is it not great enough to cover the sins in your life? It's it's a great sacrifice. It's powerful. There is no sin too great. There is no price too high that Christ cannot pay. There is no disobedience so blatant that Christ's sacrificial death will not pay the price for it. If you repent and come to God through him. That's what John started out with his letter with. And then he comes to chapter 5 and he says, You can be confident that when you pray for your brother in sin, you can know that that prayer will be answered. Why? Because no matter how great the sin of your brother is, the blood of Jesus can wash it clean. Jesus' sacrifice can pay the price. No matter how persistent, no matter how great that sin, no matter how horrific, Jesus has paid the sacrifice on their behalf. That's one reason you can be confident, because no sin is too great. Then we read from chapter 3. In chapter 3, John describes how believers are not simply given eternal life as like some promise of a future place that they will end up in. Um, Eternal life is being born of God, is the way he describes it in in this chapter. 
believers are made children of God here and now. We receive something of the, the life now. Chapter 3, verse 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God. The new life has started already. It's like we've already been reborn into this new life. Now, okay, verse 2, what we will be has not yet been made known. We're not the finished article. We're not super polished. That's why he had to give us that encouragement back in chapter 1. But the change has already started. The change has already started. Now, what is the change? Well, the change is, you can see it in verse 6, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. The change is that because God has given us this new life, it totally changes the way we behave. It turns us away from sin. In fact, if you go on sinning, it's only really evidence that perhaps you've never really known Christ. Now, why is this the change that you can see? Verse 9, this change ought to be seen because the one who is born of God has God's seed in him. Jesus Christ is living in him, giving him life. And what did Jesus Christ come to do? He came to destroy the work of the devil. So if that's what Jesus Christ came to do, and Jesus Christ is living in the hearts of each and every believer, then he will not allow the devil to go on his work. He will not allow sin to continue. The change in the life of a believer doesn't simply depend upon us being given a new list it's the lack of righteousness, the sin before we were believers, isn't just because of ignorance. It's not because we never knew what to do, and now Jesus has told us, and so we ought to do the right thing. The change is at a far deeper level than that. The change happens because Jesus' own life is at work in our hearts. So why then can you be confident that when you pray for your brother or sister, they will be led away from sin? You can be confident because... This is the very work that Jesus has come to do. And it's the very work that he has already started in your brother or sister. To lead them away from sin. To lead them out of the power and the grip of the devil. That's the whole point of his coming. To destroy the devil's work. And so if you pray for your brother who is falling into sin, you can know that your prayer will be answered. Because you're praying for the things that Jesus Christ is already doing. And then one more reason we can be confident. In chapter 5, verse 18. Verse 18 of chapter 5. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe. And the evil one cannot harm him. The reason we can be confident of people being restored to life is because the one born of Christ keeps him safe. The evil one cannot harm him. We do not belong to the devil anymore. We belong to Jesus Christ. And when you pray for your brother or sister who's fallen into sin, you're not praying dependent upon that believer having the willpower to make the change. You're praying for Jesus Christ to do his work, to use his power to keep that believer safe. We can have every confidence that when we pray for our brother or sister who's fallen into sin, God will answer and restore them to life. But there are limits, aren't there? Chapter 5, verse 16. Let's read it again. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. 
all wrongdoing is sin. And there is a sin that does not lead to death. It seems the prayer that Jesus encourages us to make can only be made in confidence if the sin that has been committed does not lead to death. Now, the question marks are raging in your mind, aren't they? Okay, What on earth is then? What is this sin that leads to death? Let's remember this. All sin leads to death. All sin leads to death. Big or small, public or private, willful or ignorant, all sin leads to death. The wages of sin is death. That's why it is Christ's death that pays the penalty for sin. And it's why the only escape from death is by trusting in Christ. Because it's not as though you've got some little sins that you can deal with yourself so long as you avoid big sins. No, every sin leads to death. All of your sins lead to death. That's why the only escape from death is by trusting in Jesus Christ, who pays not just for one or two, but for all of those sins on our behalf. All sin leads to death. How, then, can John speak of a sin that does not lead to death? What on earth can he mean? He can only mean sin that is repented of. The, the only sin that he can be referring to is sin committed by a child of God for which that child will recognize and repent of it. It can't be anything other. Because all sin leads to death. And if it were not for repentance and faith in Jesus, every sin would lead to death. That's the sin that does not lead to death then. Sin that is repented of. What does it, what does it mean when he talks about there is a sin that leads to death? Well, one thing to point out. that It doesn't necessarily need to be translated as there is a sin that leads to death. As though there is some specific instance of sin. Like, like some time where you committed this act. Like murder or rape or, or blasphemy or... or um, disfellowship or some other thing that you do it doesn't need to be translated in that way it could simply be there is sin that leads to death um, what is sin then that leads to death I would say sin that leads to death is well the opposite of sin that doesn't lead to death sin that leads to death is sin that is unrepented of sin that is unrepented of Sin which is persistent, willful, disobedience, rejection of Christ. And if you couple it with other verses in the Bible which speak of of a similar issue, you see an example of the the Pharisees are a good example who had this sin. Who had Jesus there in front of them. They had all the evidence of Jesus' miraculous power. They had all the testimony of the scriptures which they knew front to back, cover to cover. They had no escape from the conclusion that Jesus was the Messiah, the one who he claimed to be. And yet they willfully decided to malign him, to accuse him of being a devil. Not because they thought they thought he was, but because they hated him. And they did not want to accept him for the person that they knew he was. And so they rejected him willfully, purposefully. The Pharisees committed this sin that leads to death. Paul was a Pharisee. He rejected Christ. He was willfully disobedient. He committed some horrific sins. 
He murdered people. He oversaw their murder. He he persecuted Christians. He rejected Christ for many, many years. Or a number of years, let's say. Yet Paul was forgiven. Why? Because Paul bowed the knee to Christ. Paul bowed the knee on the road to Damascus. And he was forgiven. Even that rejection of Christ. The sin that does not lead to death is sin that will be repented of. Uh, The sin that leads to death is this blasphemy of the spirit, as it's called elsewhere in God's word. This continued, ongoing, willful rejection of Jesus after knowing full well who he is and all that he can offer us. How do we summarise then the limits of the prayer that John instructs us to? First, the prayer is offered on behalf of a brother or sister, a child of God. Secondly, the prayer is only made in confidence when we can be certain that the sinner will repent. Now, by describing the prayer in such dark terms, I recognise that you might think, well, haven't you, just, haven't you just removed any confidence that John was intending us to have? How can we be confident that a sinner will repent? How can we be confident that someone in the church will repent of their sin? Isn't that what we're praying for? We're asking for that. Well, uh, have you just undone the confidence? Is it only confidence in hindsight? Is it just a question of, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be? Well, no, I, I would disagree with that assessment. Throughout John's letter, John has been providing tests so that you would know who is a child of God. All sorts of tests. They come up from, from the very first verses through to the very last. Does this person have fellowship with God? Is that fellowship with God matched by the pattern of their life? Do they confess their sin to Christ? Do do they obey the word of God? Do they love their brother? Do they love the world? Do they love the Father? Are they in fellowship with other believers? Do they know the truth? Do they teach the truth? Do they deny the deity of Christ? Do they deny the sonship of Christ? Do they go on sinning in life? Are they happy to let sin reign in their habits and actions? Do they follow the devil? Do they use their material possessions to help their brothers and sisters? Do they love with actions and with truth as well as with words? Do they believe in Jesus, the Son of God? Do they acknowledge that he has come in the flesh? There are numerous tests which John provides for us throughout his letter... So that by the end of it, he can say, I've written these things so that you, you plural, you as a body, you as a people, can be certain that you would know that you have eternal life. And not just you individually, but you can know who else has eternal life. You can be clear about these people are part of us and these people are not part of us. We ought to avoid these people and be careful of what they teach. And we ought to be in fellowship and love and joined with these people. Because they have life. They are a child of God, just like me. If there are people who fit the descriptions that John gives us and meet up to the tests, who prove that they have received Christ and have life in in him, then when those people sin, you can be confident that if you pray for them, God will lead them out of that sin. You you have confidence of who you think is a brother or sister in Christ. You know who God's children are. That's not to claim that we're able to read the heart. But we apply these tests that God has given. 
We look at the pattern of their lives. We listen to what they confess. And we can be certain. This one is a child of God. This one is a child of God. And again, that's not claiming that, 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 that we're the judge. You can read their motives and their hearts and, and everything hidden. But we can have certainty. We can have confidence. And if we can have that sort of confidence, we can have the confidence that this child, this believer, will be led away from their sin because they have Christ living in them and working in their hearts. That's the confidence that John is showing us in this prayer. But, he says, don't take it too far. There are some who look like they were part of you, and they were even seemed to be a part of you for some time. But in the end, they showed that they were never part of you, because they went out from you. Therefore, I'm not saying you should pray about those people. By which he means, I'm not giving you confidence when you pray about those people. He doesn't say, don't pray for them. He doesn't say, don't pray for them. He just says, I'm not giving you confidence when you pray for them. But keep praying. Keep praying. But pray for them as an unbeliever. Pray for them as they have shown themselves to be. One who does not yet have the life of Christ in them. And pray that God would work in their heart and draw them to him. You don't have anywhere near the same confidence in those sorts of prayers. We pray trusting a merciful and loving God. Trust in a holy and just God for him to do right. We ask him to be gracious to those that we love. But we have no confidence that, we, that he will answer in the way that we ask. Yet for those who we are certain of belong to Christ, we can be confident that God will lead them away from their sin. How should we pray then? How do we put these verses into practice? Well, pray. Pray for your brother or sister. Pray for your accountability partner. Are you meeting with others and encouraging one another in the Christian life? Do you have friendships which are particularly closer than relationships that you have with others in the church? Perhaps that might be your spouse and and you speak to them in a way that uh, you encourage one another and, and, and share these difficulties and spur one another on in the Christian life. Perhaps it's other people of the same gender within the church. And you share this closer friendship in order to spur one another on. Well, pray for them. It's easy in those relationships to fall into the trap of chatting, sympathising, sharing the common difficulties, and then neglecting to do the work of prayer. The confidence we have is not in having an accountability partner. The confidence is when we bring that person to God and pray for them on their behalf, that God would lead them out of sin. When we pray for them, we can be confident that God will answer. Pray for those in the church who you see have put themselves in an unwise position. You see they're leading themselves down a path which takes them away from Christ or puts them in the face of temptation. Pray for them. Perhaps they've not yet fallen into sin, but they're walking towards it. It's not God's will that they should fall into sin. And so you can pray for them that they will be restored shown a way to live which is wiser, more helpful. Pray for those believers who have broken fellowship with others, perhaps who have broken fellowship with you. There's usually sin included in those breaches of fellowship. Pray for repentance. Pray that that 
fellowship would be healed. It's also God's will that the church will be united. We can have confidence in those sorts of prayers. But be careful if you're praying for a situation of which you are a part. Often those breaches in fellowship are due to sin. And often there's sin on both sides of the breach. Not always, but often. If you're praying for your brother or sister, be willing and ready to confront sin in your own situation as well. Pray for those who you know face regular temptation. You don't necessarily need to know all the details of their life. You don't even need to be a close friend of them. But you know, for example, that there are people within our fellowship who are married to unbelievers. You know there are people who are living with groups of unbelievers. You know there are people who go into situations regularly where they face temptation or mockery or perhaps persecution. Pray for them that they would not succumb to the temptations and the attacks of the devil, but that they would stand firm, that God would give them life. Pray for people who you see backsliding, whose Christian life is not as vigorous, is not as centred upon Christ as you saw that it once was. Pray for them, that they would be restored. Have confidence in those prayers. Again, we can't get it right all the time about who belongs to Christ, but we can have a good level of certainty. We can have confidence that we belong to Christ and we can have confidence about those around us who belongs to Christ. When you pray, don't just pray, fingers crossed, hopefully, maybe he'll hear us. Pray with confidence, knowing that God, that, that it's God's will for this person to be restored as well as your will. And wouldn't that strengthen your prayer life? Wouldn't that be a great way to to, to give you an extra motivation in prayer, to be more persistent in prayer? If you knew there was a prayer that you were able to offer that would certainly be answered, that you could pray for and then look for the results of, wouldn't that be a help if you could pray in that way? Pray for people with confidence. Now, a less obvious implication of these verses um, you might have recognised that so far the application I've given is not really about you. We often come to church each week here wanting encouragement, teaching. What do I have to go and do? How do I have to live as a Christian? What do I do next? What is going to spur me on through the difficulties of this week? And so far it's all been about other people. How do you pray for other people? But that in itself is a point of teaching for us. It's a reminder that the Christian life cannot be lived successfully if you're doing it solo. The Christian life is a life in community, in fellowship with other brothers and sisters. Do you know other people in such a way as you are able to pray for them in the way that these verses instruct? Do you allow other people to know you in such a way? And then one last thing. One personal application. There might be people listening tonight, whether here in the building or online, who wonder just how they could possibly make these sorts of prayers for other people when they're so discouraged by the sin in their own life. How can I go about praying for other people to to be lifted out of sin when I am so deep in it myself? We're both in the same hole here. We're stuck at the bottom of the same deep pit. How can I help others out of this situation? I'm the one who needs lifting out. 
And perhaps you're not even certain whether Christ would accept you. Perhaps you worry that you've gone past the limit. Perhaps you worry that you've broken too many of these tests that John has given us in 1 John. And you wonder if you ever had life in yourself. If you've ever really known Christ. These verses ought to be an encouragement for you too. If others are encouraged to pray for you with confidence that you will be restored because you're a child of God, then don't you see that is also an invitation to you to return to Christ? Not because of anything that you have or that you are or that you are able to promise or that you can do. The confidence in these prayers, the confidence that people will be restored is because Christ's death is sufficient to pay for the, pay the price of any sin. Any sin that we repent of. He is able to pay for the sins of not just your sin, but the sin of the whole world. We can be confident that that we get these prayers answered because it's his desire that we will be brought back to him. God does not take delight in seeing people fall off the back of his bandwagon. Oh, you were here for a time and now you've dropped off. Ta-ra. God desires that his children would know him and live for him and be drawn towards him. You can be confident that he has that desire for you. And so don't despair in sin as though you've lost all hope. But return to Christ. Confess your sins. He is faithful and just. And he will forgive us our sins.